we are starting this series together. This is week three. And really looking at this time and in this day, being a church that is together. You know, to be together is to be for each other and with each other. It is to be in partnership. It is to be in collaboration. And so, you know, this next Sunday on the 22nd, and we've been saying this for a number of weeks now, we're going to be having a core team meeting. As Jenny has just said, you know, who is the core? The core is you who consider this your home church, that this is your church. We, you didn't sign a piece of paper. You know, you didn't miss out on any application. We don't have membership, non-members and members. If you're in Open Arms, you're here, you're a part of Open Arms. And you continue to come and be a part of this. Well, this is your community, your home, your family. And so we're going to be really gathering together at 6 o'clock and it's going to be a celebration. I'm going to be sharing with you some exciting news and development and vision for our church. And so if you can't make it, uh, we will uh, obviously be able to communicate with you and let you know and some of the developments are happening. But we just want to gather together and celebrate all that God is doing and that he's going to do. And we'll share more about that. But as Psalm 133 says, for where how good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity? For there, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. And so we're looking at this whole concept of being together. In this day and age that we've just gone through uh, two years of many people being on their own, being isolated, living an individualistic life where it's about, you know, I can work from home, I can order my food and arrive to home, I can do everything at home. And it is the idea of community has been somewhat watered down to where it's almost been a, a social network online and digitally, but not actually in physical form. And as we really, you know, we're entering into these summer months, the first time being completely, not completely outside of COVID, but you know what I mean, completely outside of what, the way it was, it's just coming back together and seeing what it's like to be together. And scripture says that where his people are together, where there is unity, God commands his blessing. He bestows his blessing. He pours out his blessing. And so we're looking at this series in the book of Ephesians. We're going through the book of Ephesians. It's in near the, the latter end of our Bible. It's written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing it to the church in Ephesus. And we're going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Today we're looking at chapter 2. But I, I want to first give you the title and the theme of my sermon. It's this, The Scandal of Grace. The Scandal of Grace. Today... We've become very used to hearing scandals. Does anyone think that, right? Scandals, the scandal of failure, the scandal of fallen people, the scandal of power and the abuse of power. What we have as Christians and as believers is the scandal of grace. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the definition of the word scandal is an action regarded as legally wrong and shockingly outrageous. God's grace for us is shockingly outrageous. It, it, it doesn't make sense when it's compared to the law and what it means to, to be legally according to a certain religion and legalism that is this. If you do, you will get. If you don't do, you will get. Grace is you don't deserve 
And this is what you deserve, but God's grace is you get what you do not deserve. That he lavishes his grace, that he pours out his grace to us. In fact, there was a song written a number of years ago by the same name, and it says this, the verses are, Grace, what have you done? Murdered for me on that cross. Accused in absence of wrong. My sin washed away in your blood. Too much to make sense of it all. I know that your love breaks my fall. The scandal of grace, you died in my place, so my soul will live. The scandal of grace is that we sinned, yet he saved us. We deserve to die, yet he gave his life for us. We deserve to be punished, yet he took our punishment upon himself. That is the scandal of grace. And let's just pray together. God, we thank you for your grace. I pray for every one of us sitting here and listening in this moment. God, I pray that we would experience your supernatural grace. Make it more real to us, relevant to us. Reveal it to us in a new way that it becomes alive and we begin to live it out and live from the place of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, this sermon really means a lot to me because it was, in fact, this time 10 years ago, May 2012, where I first really heard this, this message of grace in a new way. I had, at the time, I was 24 years old, just started out in full-time ministry, had grown up from the age of five in church, heard, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of sermons and, you know, read the Bible through the years, many people do, and so had, had known so much about God, but Myself and Gillian, we had made friends with a number of Scandinavians and we made our way to Sweden. It was May 2012 and we went to this conference and it was a group of pastors and leaders gathering together, all based, you know, bringing themselves around the scripture. And at this time, the, the pastor and leader, he was speaking about grace and he was bringing it in this, for me, was a way that I'd never heard it before. It was like I had grown up in church heard the gospel, but never really experienced the gospel in this way. I don't know if you've had this experience where you can go about your life in such a way where you, you, know, you hear about all the things of God and the way you should live and you experience God and you know God, but it's like a part of the gospel and Jesus' salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, it, it's not really experienced in a, in a new way. And for me, it was like getting saved all over again. It was like experience God's salvation. It became so real for me and it messed up my life. It messed up my philosophy. It, it messed up my theology because I, I never truly grasped the scandal of grace. My heart for you today is that you would, you would really experience his grace in a new way. And as I preach in this Scripture from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We see that Paul, he, he introduces this gospel. And at that time in that day, it was the year between, they reckon between 50 and 60 AD, number of, a number of years after Jesus' death and crucifixion upon the cross. And at this time, the church really was split down the middle. It was those who were trying to live according to the law and those who were now experiencing the grace of Jesus Christ and what he had accomplished for them on the cross and trying to come to a place where they could 
decide where it's not the abolishment of the law, but the law does not determine my salvation. The law is there to help me in boundaries and for me to live my life. But I live according to the grace of God. And so Paul, he, he's bringing this to the church of Ephesus. And he, in chapter 1, he really opens up by sharing with us the blessings that we receive. He says that you are given all heavenly blessings when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's true for each and every one of us. We become adopted into the sonship of God where we experience the same power that raised Christ from the grave is living in us. And now in chapter 2, Paul introduces exactly the purpose of his grace. That, that he introduces to us the why behind God giving us the power and the salvation that can be experienced in Jesus Christ. And he begins in verse 1 by describing our spiritual state before salvation in Jesus. And he begins, as for you, speaking to each and every one of us, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Now let's just pause there for a second. This verse in verse 3 could pretty much sum up the internal battle that happens in each and every one of us. You know, none of us live our lives, and, and some of us th think this, I honestly do believe it, many of us think this, especially the pastor somehow, you know, has his life or her life sorted out in such a way by they never have this battle anymore, but all of us are still in this place, still in this spiritual state where we have this battle where we're trying so hard to follow Jesus and live his ways, but at the same time, trying to satisfy the cravings of our flesh, having the desires and the thoughts in our heart and mind and this battle that goes on, this tension, this conflict where, where my spiritual salvation in Jesus is leaning in my spirit in this way, but yet I'm still drawn towards sin. And he says this, that like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, that we deserve to die because of our sin, that we deserve to be punished because of the sin that we've committed. Now, we live in a day and a time and a culture and society where you get what you deserve. Would anyone else agree that? More now than ever before. You get what you deserve. We're living in a time where you will be canceled, forgotten about. You will be removed from the history of, of this day that, that once you messed up, you are lambasted. Now more than ever, even though we live in a free and liberal society and world, it's like because we can't conceive what it's like to, to be able to forgive and to forget and to be cleansed by our own way and our own righteousness, which is not the way, but we come in this place where we've been more freer than ever before and harsher than ever before. Would you agree on that? And, and Paul is saying... That we're all in the same place. We're all in the same boat. We are all deserving of our wrath. Why? Because we're trying to gratify the cravings of our flesh. But then he introduces to us something that's completely counterculture. Not just in that day, but in this day. 
something that goes against the grain of society. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We were dead and God sent his son Jesus Christ to make us alive. Even while we were still sinners, even while we were dead, God, because of his great love, poured out his grace and his mercy upon us. The scandal of grace is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about what we do or what we have done or what we have already accomplished or what we will accomplish. The gospel is grace. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. That's the gospel in essence. It's not about what we do. It's all about what he has done. This is the scandal of grace. It's shockingly outrageous. It is legally wrong according to your interpretation of the law. But Jesus came that we would not have salvation fulfilled by the law, but by his grace to take our place of punishment. And my prayer today is that you would truly discover the grace of God. Be revealed to you in a new way. That, that you would experience and know God's grace. That his grace would not just cover your sin, but it will sustain you every single day. Grace, quite simply, is getting what we do not deserve. He lavishes his grace. He pours out his grace upon us. We don't deserve it, yet he gives us what we don't deserve. Today, we, we must understand and comprehend that regardless of what we've done, where we are, how we feel, that we can even come to God in our pride and in our fear and in our insecurity and in all of our inadequacies, and we can come to him as we are, and in that place, we can receive his grace. That we don't need to sort ourselves out. We don't need to come to him as a, as a person who is, you know, formatted and fitted into a certain way that we think that God's going to be pleased by us, but we come to him as we are. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is really the essence of grace. And in these seven verses, Paul, who is not just the writer of Ephesians, but the writer of over half of the New Testament, he contrasts in seven verses the difference between the sinfulness of man and the saving grace of God. And he begins by the sinfulness of man, man's nature, man, woman, our human nature. And he, he begins in verse 1 really by stating a factual statement of our spiritual condition before Christ. You were dead in your sin. This is the place that he starts up. You were dead. Here he's painting this vivid contrast between what is man by nature before God and then what is man with God. And here we see that he, he paints this picture of how bad things are, how sinful and evil each and every one of us, so that he can then show the riches of his grace. 
John Stott, a famous theologian, wrote about this. He said, Paul first plums into the depths of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. That this is the gospel. You are a sinner, yet Christ died for us. And it begins by sharing with us the the sinful nature that each of us are born with and have. It's our natural sinful self is to, to... gratify the cravings of our flesh. And what does this mean? It means that we don't learn how to be sinful. We just naturally are. It's, it's our nature. This means that we need to learn how to live according to the ways of God. This means that we are all born in this way and we, we live in this conflict, as I said, in, in our hearts where we're, we want to follow after the Holy Spirit and follow the ways of Jesus, but yet at the same time, our internal spirit is trying to follow after our own ways. Now, as a dad of four young boys, I have experienced this time and time again, that we are born with this nature. Let me tell you, they do not learn, need to learn how to be sinful. They do not learn, need to learn how to be selfish, how to be greedy, how to be all about me and who I am. They, it's like It's like they were designed in such a way that they were born to fight with one another. That they were born to to just throw temper tantrums for some reason, never on our own, always when other people are around, in public spaces, to, to be able to drive their parents to the point of sanity where they waken up multiple times a night. Has anyone else experienced this? This was just me. Steal all of your, you know, beloved possessions and throw them in the bin and you don't even know what. I don't know what it is, but... Our kids need to be taught how to live in a good way. How to live in in learning how to love and how to be gracious and how to be kind. For somehow, especially boys, I don't know, I haven't had girls and experienced this. I've heard girls are way better to live with. They they wreck, their boys wreck your house. Girls wreck your head. No, someone says, okay. (laughs) But we need to teach our children how to do good. We need to teach our children how to fight that internal nature. It's funny, but that's God's role in our lives. He needs to teach us how to live according to his ways. You know, it's funny because my, my third boy is Isaac. Um, each of our boys were born with some of our personalities. It was like he got a mixture of all of the strong parts of our personality. So he's the strongest person in the whole family out of the six. He's the most stubborn. Like he's got this nature with inside of him that you want to you wanna fight, but you want to break his spirit. And recently, it's been so funny because at nighttime, putting him in bed, he'll just say, I'm sorry, Daddy. I'm sorry for being so grumpy. <laughs> I'm sorry for, for, he'll just like, at the end of the day, he'll say sorry, but not through the day. We're like, thankfully, something is getting through. <laughs> Something's getting through. But it's the same in our, our, our relationship with God. I don't know if you've had this place where you're like, God, I don't need to learn another lesson. You know, I, I, I feel like I've learned all the lessons, but for some reason, God keeps bringing us through these places and these situations and scenarios in our life, we need to be brought to dependence in God, brought through, reminding it's not about what I do or what I've done. It's all about the grace of God. And he needs to teach us and, and be able to show us that we naturally, as verse 3 says, we're by nature naturally sinful, deserving of wrath. To receive wrath is to receive extreme anger from God. It's described as 
God's righteous and constant hostility to evil, his refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. See, before Jesus, we were by nature deserving of condemnation. With Jesus, we no longer deserve condemnation. Why? Because he took our condemnation upon himself. He took our sin upon himself. We deserve to die, but because of Jesus, we've been given life. We deserve to be punished and to experience that shame and that guilt, but because of Jesus, there is grace and mercy. If it wasn't for Jesus, our future was death, but because of Jesus, our future is life and life forevermore. Um, And this is, again, this is just incredibly, just for me, was such a revelation. And I hope that maybe it's something you've heard before that become a new revelation. I, I realized this, I had the gospel the wrong way forward, the other way around. The gospel oftentimes is this, Jesus loves you, he's for you. He saved you, he's chosen you, he's calling you, but you need to do. But now you need to fulfill. But now you need to keep this up. And the true gospel, the true gospel is grace is you are a sinner who has messed up, will always mess up. You are a failure. You will never make it. You have never made it. That is your future. But because of God's love for you, he has set you up, not from a place of slavery, from a place of freedom and a victory. You can mess up all you want. Jesus loves you. You, 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 can, you can not do anything else for the rest of your life and fulfill any purpose, and he still loves you. He's still for you. That's the gospel. Have you ever had the experience, whether with your husband or wife, or you're with your friend or whoever who gives you a massive compliment and says, you're so good, you're doing such a great job, you're doing really great, but it's like everything else they said before that conjunction, before that word, didn't matter. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, this is the sinfulness of man. This is the spiritual state without Jesus, but... He shows us the saving grace of God. But because of his great love for us, this word, this conjunction contrasts life without Jesus in verses 1 to 3 and life with Jesus. Contrasts our future without Jesus and our future with Jesus. You deserve to die, but there is good news. You deserve wrath, but God's grace is for you. I love this statement. It says, we were dead and dead men do not rise, but God made us alive with Christ. But because of his love, God who is rich in mercy, God decided to show his mercy to us. What's the difference between grace and mercy? Grace is getting what we do not deserve. Mercy is to to not get what we do deserve. Because of his mercy, he restrained his wrath. He refrained himself from punishing each and every one of us. And instead, he gave us his love. This is really important. Because the question is why? 
because he loves us. It was out of the movement of his love that he lavished his grace upon us. It was out of the movement of his love that he gave us the mercy that we did not deserve. It was out of the movement of his love. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. It's out of love that God gave us his grace. This is verse 5 says, God is rich in mercy. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. The Greek word is, this was written in Koine Greek or ancient Greek used from make alive or made alive means to impart life or to breathe life. We were dead and he breathed life into us. He made us alive. He resurrected us just like he resurrected Christ from the grave. He made us alive. He brings us to life. Again, this is a continuous life that we can keep coming back to. And when I keep going to the place where I'm trying to fulfill my life in such a way to grasp or to attain or to accomplish, we come back to Jesus, experience his grace, and he gives us life forevermore. What happened to us being dead in our sin? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ won the victory, and he gives us victory. That we're living from a place of victory, not to get to victory. Not to get to freedom, but from freedom. He has defeated death. He has crushed the head of Satan. He has completely abolished sin in our life. He has cleansed us. He has died once for all. So where does death have a place in our lives? It is no place. Sin has no place in our lives and in our mind and in our hearts. So we need to remember and believe that we have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved. Again, the Greek used the word for saved or salvation is sozo. It means to rescue, to deliver, to be freed. We've been rescued from death. We've been freed from the grip of sin. We are free. We are free. Verse 6 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Here we see that there is a partnership that is formed. We become united together with Jesus. Just as God exerted his power when he raised Christ from the grave, he makes us alive. He imparts life. He, bring, he raises us up to be seated in heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. That means that where I go, Jesus is with me. What I face and the fights that I'm in and the battles that I go through, Jesus is with me. He is for me. It means that I am together with him. That means that I have been saved I am saved and I will be saved forevermore. There's nothing I could do or have done to attain it. It is there. It is done. It is finished. It's been incredibly sad in these last number of years. I've met and sat with so many Christians who have forgotten about the grace of God. They understand faith. But the crisis of faith is not missed in their belief. Again, the Greek word used for faith is pistis, means to believe, to place your faith in, to trust. 
Oftentimes, our problem is not with our faith. It's our, our receiving of his grace, acknowledgement of his grace, that I place my faith in him. We receive salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. And we become partners with Jesus. Ephesians 2 verse 7 says, in order that the purpose of which in that the coming ages he might show or display the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That through our lives, others may experience the incomparable riches of his grace. That through our lives, that others may see the grace of God. Church should be known as a gracious place. A place that forgives its own. church is known as a place that I can come to, that I can receive help and wholeness, that I won't receive condemnation, that I won't receive even more shame than I had before, that I won't go to church leaving here more burdened than I was before I even entered the room. That means that each and every one of us as we go as the church to be the church that when you have an experience with another man or woman or your son or your daughter, and you're with them, they experience the incomparable riches of his grace when they've just left you. They experience more of his grace. That it, It's displayed, the glory of God is displayed through you. And the grace that you have may be poured out to others. And Paul, as he's writing these words, no one understood the grace of God like Paul. You see, Paul was... In his own explanation of himself in Galatians 1.13, he states that he violently persecuted God's church. He says, I did my best to destroy it. Paul was, came from the tribe of Benjamin. It was at that time he upheld to the, the law, to the letter of the law. He was a young man full of zeal. He, he was a man who lived according to each word in scriptures. And there was at that time 613 commands according to the Jewish tradition. And he's, his desire, his passion was to fulfill each and every command. That he could live his life in such a way that he could receive acceptance by God. And so he lived his life to persecute the church. Because he saw the Christian church going against the Jewish church completely counter to the law in which God had set emotion at that time. And he, he vowed to murder Christians. So he lives his life out of an aspiration to get to a place of acceptance by God. Living his life according to the religion of that day. The legalities and legalism in which he lived his entire life. Yet nothing he did could make him right in the eyes of God. We see that Paul is on a road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 verse 3. He's on the road to Damascus to, again, persecute the church and wipe out the church. And Jesus, we see that there's a light that flashes from heaven. And in a moment, Jesus appears to Paul and he says these words, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. This is really important because it was an encounter with Jesus that changed Paul's life. At the time, his name was Saul. Jesus gave him a new name and a new identity. At the time, he was a persecutor of Christians, only to become a Christian himself. At the time, he was trying to, trying to attain salvation 
by what he could do when Jesus completely transformed his life and his mind to live a way to teach others that it's by what Jesus has done for you. Paul was living his life in such a way where he had unspeakable sins and yet at the same time was trying to be such a good person and do good things, yet nothing could make him right with God. And Paul lived every day remaining on this earth that he had trying to convince and preach the gospel in such a way and still his words loud, ring loud today and truer than ever before that we must receive and know that resonate within us. We may have unspeakable sins, but Jesus can transform our identity. We may be living according to the law and religion, but Jesus can give us salvation by grace and by grace alone. Many of us I know feel disqualified and unqualified for our sin and because of our sin that somehow our identity is wrapped up in who we were and what we did. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't sound fair that you could come to Jesus, repent and confess of your sin and receive his forgiveness. It's like as if you never sinned. You become justified. You receive not condemnation, but salvation. Ah, this is such an important sermon and message and understanding in our theology and how we live our lives, how we train up the next generation, how we live and work with our colleagues and how we approach and treat every single person around us with grace and love and mercy, the same that was poured out upon us. You see, Paul was invited to accept God's grace. Jesus gave him an invitation. I believe he's giving each of us an invitation. Follow me and let go of your sinful nature. Follow me and let go of yourself. What is God calling you to let go of today? To surrender. To bring to him each of us. We are not perfect. We are sinful by nature. It was who we were born on this earth. Exactly with that identity and that leaning towards. But can we finally come to a place where I receive his grace? Yeah, let's just close our eyes and bow our heads and Maybe, maybe you just feel yourself just tired, worn out. Maybe it's been some time since you experienced that grace of God. Now, what I love about the grace of God is it's not just given to us to save us, but to sustain us there every day, every waking moment that we know it's only by the grace of God that I'm alive. It's only by the grace of God that, God that I get to do this. Now having that perspective can change our lives. 
Because we're living from a place of freedom and victory, not to get. Maybe your whole theology has been based on the gospel. You are loved by Jesus, but. Maybe you need to pray to God right now in your moment. God, just completely upend my faith. Because it's been, it's been backwards. It's not been based on the true foundation of your grace. Help me just to have faith in you, to believe and trust in your grace. For those of us who are maybe a little bit more driven to achieve, to accomplish, to become, those are good things. Those are good desires, the desires of our heart in which God says that he will give us. Maybe we need to allow our identity to be shaped in, not to achieve love or favor or blessing or acceptance but to come from a place that I am accepted I am loved I've already achieved everything that I could ever achieve that would nothing more that I could add to my life would make anyone or God love me more but from that place I serve I give I lead I love and I pray for every one of us right here just touch our hearts and our spirits Maybe today you need to give your life to Jesus and place your faith in him. I wonder, could you just pray this prayer with me deep in your heart? And yes, it is this simple. Maybe you've followed Jesus for many years of your life, but this has become something that has not become real to you. It was in the past, but not now. I want to invite you to join with me and pray these words and say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I've done wrong. I've messed up. I'm a failure. But I thank you that you chose me, that you saved me, and that I am forgiven. I believe today that by your grace, I am saved in Jesus' name. Amen.